Welcome to episode two. Today we're going to be talking about puppies. There's going to be a bunch of information talking about the development of a puppy through to some of the basics such as uh, destructive chewing, jumping and house training and a couple of things that I hold dear to my heart in regards to raising a healthy and confident pup. So first, let us have a look at the mental development and emotional development of our pups. Some of this is going to be sort of background interest, some of it is going to be for use, but all of it is practically useful and allows us to understand and prepare for almost the first four years, in fact, the rest of the life that we have our pup for. So let's just get into it. Now, the first couple of weeks, um, when our puppies are born, they aren't able to see, their eyes are still closed and they can't hear, their ears are still shut. They pop open a little bit later. And the first kind of 14 days, now this isn't exactly written in stone, but they're, they're pretty solid benchmarks. For the first couple of weeks, it's called the neonatal stage and it is the most helpless stage that our pups find themselves in. They can barely crawl over to their mother's teat to be able to suckle and uh, compete with their litter mates for both warmth and for milk. They can't control their own body temperature. Um, they can't even toilet on their own. The mother, um, who we'll call the dam, she has to uh, lick the anal glands or the anus or of uh, the pup in order to be able to get them to toilet, for example. Um, and then mum cleans all of that sort of stuff up. So whilst the pups are able to make some noise, they can also crawl, but it's very, very gross motor function that they have available to them. There's not really much in the way of fine motor control. Um, interesting to note, there are some people that as almost as soon as the pups are born, they're imprinting odor onto the mum. And there's been some good studies done, but um, I think it was uh, Scott and Fuller that had put some odor around the mother's nipples and then they tested that out in later life through later development and determined that the pups that had been imprinted on those particular odors in that method um, showed a pretty good disposition and aptitude towards finding that odor again. So involuntary learning is already occurring and it has already occurred even in the womb. But as our pups start to uh, get out of this neonatal phase, they go into what's called a transitional phase, and that's between weeks two and three. That's when the ears pop open, the eyelids open, uh, teeth are starting to erupt, um, but the eyes can't fully see. There's lots of blurriness. So think of this as like the infant stage, right? Where they're able to um, crawl around a little bit, they're able to wobble around, um, they can start to chew on things, they can start to see, but not necessarily discern things. Vision still needs to be trained, so to speak. That, that comes online and of its own. And they start to hear things and pay attention to things in the, in the environment. And that's kind of the, also the point where uh, we really want to hammer in some of the, the human handling. So you have your uh, early neurological stimulation, um, whereby we turn the dogs onto their sides, upside down, on their heads, and that we turn them over for a very short period of time, exposing them to some sort of mild pressure, right, so that we get some of that cortisol flowing through, and then we relieve that pressure so that the cortisol switches off and our dogs threshold to cortisol, which we talked about in episode one, our dogs don't feel like they need to panic and escape so quickly. And through the constant repetition of that, we're able to then um, 
create a puppy who is far more confident and far more able to deal with mundane stresses. Um, after this transitional phase, so between sort of weeks three and four, we have what can be called an awareness period. That's where we have full sensory awareness, smell, sight, sound, touch, those sorts of things. And our pups are also able to regulate their own body temperature. And finally, thanks, they're able to go to the toilet autonomously on their own, independent of their mum. They can also start to move on to solids rather than only taking their nourishment from mum. That gives mum some sort of independence then as well. And it's around about this time that we want to start to introduce some novel surfaces to our pups so that they learn to move over uh, tarp, lino, wood, grass, um, tabletops, slippery surfaces, stable surfaces, all these sorts of things. Yeah, these are the, this is the time when our pups are starting to explore their environment and the more that a responsible breeder is able to systematically expose their pups to, then generally speaking, the more readily that pup is going to be able to adapt into their owner's lifestyle later on down the track. A lot of the work that happens in these early phases allows our pups to deal with life later on. Um, that strong foundation of early exposure allows our dogs to, uh, rather than succumb to that cortisol, that, that escape mechanism, it allows them to deal with that, internalize it and adapt, right? making them a, a far stronger adult dog. So even, even though our dogs may not have come across that particular thing, the fact that they've been exposed to hair dryers, air blowers, wind, and those sorts of things now means that when there's a strong wind just before a storm, they're not freaking out. Yeah, so um, there's lots of brush strokes that go into creating the end result. And we don't always appreciate the brush strokes that went into the painting, but what we do appreciate is the end product that hangs on our wall. So between weeks three and seven, we have what is called the, the canine socialization period. This is when our dogs are starting to not just interact with the other pups, they're actually starting to intellectually develop a control mechanism. They're, they're figuring out body language, behaviors, and they're figuring those things out through their litter mates and they're figuring those things out from their mum as well, from their dam. They're also starting to establish a hierarchy within the litter. Yeah, Mum tends to be the be all and end all. She is um, the top dog, so to speak, because she's also the one who is controlling a certain amount of bite inhibition from the puppies. If the the puppies bite down too hard, considering that they have sharp, pointy, serrated teeth now. If they bite down too hard on mum's nipple, she's not going to like it. And especially for the third, fourth, fifth, sixth puppy that is feeding at that time, look, we have it fairly easy. I can't say that I've ever done it, but for those women that breastfeed at some point, you've reached a tolerance. Now imagine that you've got up to eight, eight to 12 pups that you're trying to feed at once you only have so much tolerance and at some point pain is enough you growl you snap the pups learn in order to keep eating 
I need to not bite down so hard. Same thing happens with the play between litter mates. If I play too rough, then the other pup tries to get away. They squeak and they scamper away. Or if I squeak because that other pup has bitten me too hard or knocked me around too much, I squeak and they leave me alone. I figure out that I have some agency, I have some control upon my environment, and they start to figure things out. If I start acting out these innate, these instinctive behaviors, it's a means for me to communicate how I feel. And then our dogs are able to develop far healthier ways of dealing with life. What I tend to see as a trainer is um, based upon very poor socialization within this period, dogs that bite down too hard, dogs that look at biting as an, as an acceptable means of communicating, and they become far more aggressive because they were so much bigger than their other dogs, or they lie down and take it because they were so much smaller than all the other pups in, in the litter. Or perhaps they've had, like I have seen um, a case where the mother committed infanticide upon almost the entire litter, meaning that she turned on the litter and tried to kill all of them, and there wasn't very many survivors. That is a seriously traumatic event that leaves a permanent mark in a pup. And the pup that I saw, um, Marley, she was very sensitive to touch. All you had to do was touch her and she would go ballistic. She would try all of these forms of appeasement in order to essentially, in her head, overcome that survival situation. She didn't want to be killed. right? And the things that happen early on in a, a pup's life create an involuntary and subconscious reaction for the rest of our dog's lives. So whilst it doesn't need, mean to say that everything needs to be hunky-dory, everything needs to be positive reinforcement, we can have plenty of pressure, plenty of adversity, plenty of aversive situations, because without those, then we're essentially creating a marshmallow pup made of popcorn muscles. And as soon as that there's any sort of pressure that happens in life, you know, a motorbike goes past, someone comes in at a party and says hi in a loud tone of voice, uh, anything that, that can happen, thunder, lightning, mowers, vacuum cleaners, the Roomba goes past, your phone rings, Facebook messages come through, all of these mundane things to us suddenly create a very real perceived threat in our pups and we have a serious issue. Yeah, so it's important that they go through a well-adjusted and fairly strategic but also fairly dynamic whelping period. And those things are pretty much beyond our control. But we'll push on now like with the, the, the hierarchy and the relationships and how to establish them how to establish them and how to move through the social hierarchy and go, and learn out what happens when I push my way up the social hierarchy, how much more competitive it tends to get and how much more stressful it is to be in the middle of the social hierarchy and how terrifying it can be to be at the bottom of the social hierarchy. Those are the things that happen between that three to seven weeks. Now, as they come out of the canine socialization period, we enter what is called the human socialization period. And that tends to occur between seven to 12 weeks. That's when pups tend to realize that humans are something useful. Right? They're not threatening, they're useful. And they start to investigate people. And this is a useful thing for us because 
we're able to create in our pups the type of interaction that we want them to have when they go to their owner. Right, so around about this time, they're also fully weaned and, and by about week seven, so day 49 is the scientific reference point, is when the brain is running at its full capacity, so to speak. Right? That doesn't mean it's finished developing, but it is up and running, very similar to a child's brain. And, and so through that, our young pups are able to start to learn how to control and be controlled by their environment. So during the, the human socialization, that, I mean, that goes up to 12 weeks. And a 12-week-old puppy is, is capable of doing quite a lot. Right? They, we can start teaching them a lot of really cool things very, very early on. So the, that day 49 is when the brain waves are kind of on par and fully functional, similar to an adult's. Now, parallel to this, between weeks 8 to 11, we also have what's called a, a, a first fear period. Now, this is kind of a, a sensitive uh, period of a pup's development. And when not taken care of well enough, there is potential for trauma to occur. And that will tend to show itself in later life. So we do need to be, be certain that we have kind of strategic or, or better said careful and positive interactions with new, no, well, with novelty. So things such as thunder, um, Thunderclaps, cars, loud noises, the blender, um, mundane things. We really want to take care of them quite well so that we can capitalize on what is otherwise quite a scary event. Now, uh, that doesn't mean, and it should certainly stop us from wrapping up hups up in cotton wool and keeping them away from the real world at this particular stage. Between weeks eight and 11, our pups aren't fully vaccinated and the popular opinion is that our pups should be isolated at home and very, very gingerly taken out into the backyard and that's about it. They shouldn't be exposed to anything because whatever we do wrong now will echo into eternity. Now, the, the main issue with that is what we don't expose our dogs to now, they can't develop a coping mechanism for later. The damage is already done. Um, and I would go as far as to say that it, it's, it's a abuse through the lack of exposure. Up until we have this first fear period, one of the strongest things we can teach our pups is a very strong response to the word yes, or a clicker, or a bike bell, whatever it is that you're using, so that when novel things happen, we can pair not the intellectual box ticking, but an emotional response. When we teach, or when I teach yes, we're, we're not teaching our dogs, hey, you did this amazing, aren't you just the best? We're teaching them that they've just won a million bucks, and then we provide them with a million dollars. So if every time someone said to you, hey, here's a spider, look, don't worry about it, man. It's just a spider. It's got eight legs. Yeah, it's a bit of fur. It's got some fangs on it, but it's not going to hurt you. You're not going to overcome your fear of spiders that way. 
But if someone says, hey, if you look at that spider, I want to give you a million bucks. Guaranteed that someone with a fear of spiders is going to endure pressure to get to that million dollars that they can see in the other person's hands right now. It, it's there, it's for free. All I've got to do is look at the spider. And soon enough, looking at the spider doesn't create a fear response anymore because I'm going to get something tangible from it. And then I can start to push deeper into that fear. I can push deeper into these things, all based on the power of what yes means to my dog. So it's kind of important for us to expose our dogs to novelty, expose our dogs to mild fears, because this is a point where I want to put a huge amount of groundwork in so that my dog sees the world as a way of pulling triggers to get to yes, rather than being socially isolating and becoming reactive, aggressive, anxious, uh, and going sideways in all manner of different avenues. The next phase that our pups go through, it usually tends to occur between 10 to 16 weeks, and certainly by the 16th week, uh, the, the, the period of development that we call the critical period is drawing to a close. So 16 weeks is about four months old and, and we kind of refer to this as the hierarchical classification period. The pup is becoming more independent of the litter and of mum. So it's at around about four months that uh, the confidence is starting to grow, they're increasing their range away from the familiar, heading out towards the unfamiliar. So uh, what is tending to happen from a developmental phase is that the pups are starting to learn to explore their environment in order to determine what is useful and what is useless. So they're starting to play with all sorts of things, whether that's rocks, sticks, grass, clippings, branches, uh, toys like balls, uh, rags, socks undies, power cords, they're starting to investigate whatever it is that is in their environment to determine what is useful and what is useless. And then we come along and we, we tend to wonder why. Why is my dog chewing so much? Why is my dog doing this? Why is my dog doing that? Um, and let's be honest now, the first 12 months of a puppy's life is kind of hell for us because there's so many things that our dog needs to learn and we need to be able to take strategic advantage of as many teachable moments as we possibly can. Now, at about 16 weeks, that's when the pups tend to get their last, in, uh, their last vaccination and they're given that certificate from their, their vet to say that, hey, you are now fully vaccinated by week 18, you're right and ready to go. Now, at the end of 16 weeks is when we say that the critical period of, the, of development, that window has now closed for that pup. That is a time where we are essentially squeezing in as much learning as we possibly can, whether we like to or not, but uh, after 16 weeks, what we have missed now is very, very strenuous to recover from later. So let's just say, for example, I had a, a client a little while ago. Uh, they have a beautiful golden retriever, but he was absolutely petrified of any novelty. 
The reason why was because for the first 12 weeks of his life, um, happened to coincide with um, the first sort of big lockdown that we had due to COVID. Um, he had a heart murmur, which is not that uncommon in puppies, but the vet decided and the uh, breeder decided that he should be uh, kept relatively free from doing things just, just to be sure. So he was kept at home in a familiar environment and he was not exposed to anything else as time went on. So during those first 12 weeks, now let's keep in mind like after week seven, so week seven, eight, and then the last couple of weeks, there weren't any other puppies really to play with. There's maybe one or two dogs floating around, there's the family, and he had kind of maladapted quite strenuously because what had happened was he was living on an acreage. So he had a couple of acres, so, and this is in the lockdown period, so there's not a lot of visitors coming and going. He's only able to deal with the people that he can readily see. So his human socialization period is extremely tight. He's not meeting a lot of people. He's not meeting a lot of dogs. He's not being exposed to a lot of things. So because he wasn't able to be exposed to these mundane things, as he starts to develop and grow into an adult dog, he's starting to show signs that are quite worrying. And one of the things was with him, if there was an infant present, he was fine. But if there's no infant present, he's not fine. To the point where when his owners came in to um, back home, uh, like a lot of uh, um, places now, um, they're still uh, living at, at the family home, but they're living in a granny flat out the back. No, it's totally fine. But there are two ways to access that granny flat, right? One is through the side gate, and one is through the main building. So if they didn't come into the backyard, through the back door of the main building, the, their dog would freak out. If they came through the side gate, the dog would be beside himself because it's too scary for him and he doesn't have the coping mechanisms that should have been imprinted into him in the earlier phases. So he doesn't have a coping mechanism. So what we needed to do in that instance is we needed to set up a way um, to open up that window of learning again and allow him to deal with real life, which we managed to do. Um, it took some time and, and we got there and, and he's, he's a, a well-adjusted dog now. But had the breeder been able to um, have the confidence to expose this pup to, to normal things, not, then we would have, or they would have been able to uh, create a far more balanced pup on on the sending out of the pup into their new home. And this is something that you will tend to see with backyard breeders. This is quite prevalent in um, in puppy milled dogs. So they're, they're kept in relatively stagnant conditions. Stagnant's a bit of a harsh word, I, I guess. I think that for those two types of, of pups that are being pushed out, um, sterile would be a better way of, of um, of labeling it they're not exposed to a huge amount because the pup is seen more as a um, more as a revenue stream rather than um, a product of breeding 
right? A product of raising. Whereas a reputable breeder is going to turn around and they're going to put a lot of effort in. They're going to go uh, to the next level to try and develop a, a powerful, a courageous, confident pup that can go into the home and present as few issues as you possibly could see. Unfortunately, that does, that whilst that does happen, um, given the climate that we have, there are a lot of other issues floating around, and certainly the capitalist market is one of those, and that creates a lot of issues for uh, people later on in life. Now, as our pups develop a little bit further on, so from 16 weeks through to about eight months, uh, the we have an, another fear sort of period that tends to occur. Um, and in, indeed, it, it's more like a flight instinct, right? So that between four to eight months, our pups are increasing their range and increasing the amount of time they have away from us, right? Because they've habituated to us, we've become their normal, and that becomes less interesting and less enticing. So we need to be doing more things with them in order to, to recapture that attention. But we also need to expose our pups to the environment which is most pertinent to them. If I've got a city pup, I don't necessarily need to go out into the countryside and expose them to sheep and cattle and horses and quad bikes and things like that. Vice versa, if, I'm, if I've got a farm pup, I don't need to bring them in to figure out, into the city to figure out what buses and all that sort of stuff sound like. There's, it's two different lifestyles and I'm, I really wanna specialize my dog into the lifestyle that is most pertinent to what they're gonna be dealing with. And if I can do that, the chances are quite high that I don't need to surrender the pup or give the pup away later on down the track. And if they do get rehomed, if I do go on a holiday somewhere and I take my pup with me, then that dog has a strong foundation of lessons learned and they can apply those skills later on down the track as well. Now, between four to eight months in particular, you're probably gonna find that your dog, your pup's recall is gonna suffer a fair bit because well, let's be honest, we're normal. And as a teenager, we are starting to find out all sorts of weird and wonderful things about the environment. And I wanna go out and I wanna be able to find out these things for myself because reading about things in books just isn't cool enough. I actually have to put boots in the ground and pups are no different. They're starting to explore the environment. They're starting to discover that this isn't poo, this is sheep poo, this is rabbit poo, this is fox poo, this is male dog, this is female dog, this is an old female dog, this is a, a a male dog in his prime that is raw fed. They're discovering all of these different things in their environment based upon things that they've known before, but now they're getting a deeper knowledge of them. They're starting to figure out the difference of smells between different leaves and different people, different clothes. So there's, they're starting to figure out not just what is useful and what is useless, but they are also starting to learn what is quite threatening to them. So they're starting to be able to filter out what is useless and starting to figure out what is useful and what is threatening. One I can use and I want to go towards and the other one I don't want to be near and I may need to escape it. And they start to develop pathways to escape mechanisms. Yeah. Now between six to 14 months, we have what's called a second fear period. Now this is when uh, we'll get cautious behavior being elicited by novel situations, 
yeah? And that may be, a common sort of thing is my dog doesn't like uh, men with beards who are wearing sunglasses and hats because they must have been abused by them in the past. Well, what tends to happen is um, they haven't come across a bearded bloke with a hat and sunnies on, so now they see one and he wants to say hi, he's coming in, and our pup just freaks out because they don't have a coping mechanism for this alien that is moving towards them. So they start to become more cautious and they have to relearn. They have this deeper sense of perception that they've got to figure out, is this dude threatening? Is he useful or is he useless? And then they start to, through repetition, figure out, nah, it's just another person. Don't worry about it. What you'll also tend to see, particularly in males around about this, the second fear period, is they'll start to raise their leg and they'll start to mark a little bit more. And in females, um, they'll get their first estrus. And sometimes that will go largely, sometimes that will go unnoticed because um, the pre-estrus, um, there may not be much bleeding, there may not be much swelling, um, but the second time that it comes around, then um, it, it's certainly noticeable. What does tend to happen in this second fear period, this is kind of, it's not where we are, um, it's not a case of the instinctual fears. It's more a case of we are learning how to um, how to respond to raised cortisol levels. And what is working now? How do I escape this particular pressure? How do I avoid this nastiness? How do I get at something that is more normal or more calm than what it, whatever it is that is triggering me? Now the dog is mature enough to be able to go, okay, so there was a loud noise, I ran away, and the loud noise didn't follow me. Stoked, now I can eat again. So next time there's a loud noise, the dog runs away. The next time that there is another loud noise, not necessarily the same one, the dog goes, well, the last time I ran away and everything was fine. So now I've got a dog who is afraid of loud noises. Yeah. So long-lasting ha habits can form now, and if I'm not careful, those things are going to stay for life. So I need to be aware that there are certain warning signs. Okay, so my dog is freaked out by this. How can I start to reprogram that response? Yeah. So positive experiences around nasty events are a good thing. So uh, I prefer my clients start to work on uh, real skills like your obedience skills. Uh, in the in a, uh, the sociability program, and I prefer to start that from about five to six months of age because we have mental maturity. We've built a solid foundation for our dog to be able to overcome themselves, think and rationalise, so to speak, and really come to grips with what we're doing. Yeah. Whereas as a puppy, I, I tend to concentrate on different things. I tend to concentrate on communication, exposure, and things like that. So between, in that second fear period, uh, I want to expose the pup to fear, but I also want to expose the dog to uh, means of escaping that fear. Right? So I'm building up skills, and then through the training process, I'm also incorporating temptations, fears, and things like that so that we can refine the skill set that we want to have later on in life. Socialization is also very, very key. I find that a well-socialized dog tends to present 
less behavioral problems. Yeah, And by well socialized, I don't mean, hey, he just wants to say hi as he's running towards you, barking his head off. He doesn't want to say hi. Uh, what I mean by socialization is a dog that can happily walk through a crowded street of people and not get freaked out. I mean that a dog can happily be um, in a daycare environment without having to jump down every other dog's throat and say, hey, please don't kill me. By socialization, I mean a dog that is fluent in being a dog. They understand that that other dog sniffing means maybe they don't want to say hi right now. When I push too hard and make the other dog yelp or lie down, maybe I'll stop playing with them right now. And vice versa, a dog that can do that, they can yelp to turn the other dog off. That's socialization. And another thing is habituation, learning that the lawnmower is not going to kill me. It's there, but it's not a threat. It's scary, but it's it's not coming to get me. A dog that learns how to deal with these sorts of things is going to be far better off coming out of that fear period than going in. Now, between one to four years, we tend to see our dogs mature. Now, that de it depends on size. It depends on breed. There's a bunch of different factors in there. But between one to four years, um, the dogs will have hit full size. Um, they will have hit their full um, skeletal growth as well as their muscular growth. Yeah, so like your, your greyhounds look a lot different to your Amstaffs. Right? The Amstaffs have a lot more muscle over their whole body. But if we have a look at the thighs of a greyhound and then have a look at those long legs, very, very different to what an Amstaff looks like. But between one to four years is when they hit physical maturity irrespective of breed. But what I'll tend to see between those one to four years is the behavioral issues that will start to crop up because I haven't, I haven't been aware of them. I haven't been appreciating the sensitive nature of my particular pup um, or I've just been blasé and now I'm on the recovery. So things like resource guarding, reactivity, impulse control, aggression, leash reactivity, jumping up, incessant barking, uh, my dog never turns off. Uh, uh, my dog's not paying any attention to me. So around about that 18 months to two years, it, that is when I'll tend to see the most amount of behavioral problems um, being presented to me. And a lot of the dogs that you'll find in a shelter or in a rescue are also around that same age because around about this time is when the dogs are too big, too fast, too strong, and also too far down the path of whatever it is that they're on that it is easy to, it's not easy to control them anymore. So it's quite, it's, it's much easier to put that dog then in a too hard basket and palm it off to somewhere else. And look, that's how, that's my bread and butter. That's what people come to me for. And I'm certainly not, um, I'll, I appreciate and I understand it. There's, there are times where problems aren't understood until they finally do explode. Um, and that's kind of the point of the podcast is to understand that there is a bunch of different periods of development that our dogs go through that lead up to that particular behavioral problem. And look, there's genetic traits to it too. Look, the behavior doesn't just happen in the moment. What happens is the generations before your pup have led up to your pup being born with a certain mindset. Uh, a certain range of instincts 
a certain range of escape mechanisms, coping mechanisms, and we will see those as the pup grows up. And some things we can't beat, they're genetic. Dogs will bark. Dogs will chase fast-moving objects. Dogs will sniff. They will sniff out things that you don't want sniffed out at the wrong moment in time. That's a dog's nature. And some dogs try as hard as we might. Some dogs are born scared and they will live scared. They will be born aggressive and they will live aggressive. And we need to learn how to deal with that. So not every dog is able to be rehabilitated to sit on the middle of the bell curve as a normal, well-adjusted dog. Some dogs need more constraints. Some dogs need more help. Um, so we're going to sort of dive into a few other things now. Um, but that just kind of covers the mental development of our pups as they mature into adults. So let's look at where our pups are when we bring them home. So we're going to have a look at a couple of phases in a little bit more detail, and that's the canine socialization, the human socialization, and the first fear period. So that's, that's kind of the time between weeks three and 11 of our pup's life. Yeah. So during the canine socialization stage, the puppy's learning to uh, communicate effectively using canine body language. Postures such as rolling on their back, sitting, uh, begin to take a specific meaning as part of their physical vocabulary. Right? So it's not just a spontaneous movement. There's a, there's a strategy, there's a purpose to it. And you can imagine that this stage is similar to a baby first learning to play peekaboo. Yeah? At first they'll smile and not really know what's going on, but they're, they're kind of engaged in the game. And soon enough they'll understand that there's a sequence of events that cause that happy smile. Yeah? And it's no different with the pups. They learn how to coax play out of other dogs and they also learn how to stop when they're being told to by other dogs or requested to. These associations combine to form the beginnings of social etiquette when amongst other pups and dogs. Yeah, so this is that socialization that I was talking about before. Pups can get away with uh, a huge amount. Uh, I've had pups bite the eyelids of adult dogs and the adult dog has been okay with that. But at some point, um, that larger dog has had enough and usually they'll use some negative punishment, they'll get up and they'll walk away or they will use some positive punishment, they'll put a paw up and they'll block that pup from being able to execute that behavior. Um, up until about six months of age, I find that pups have what, um, what in Germany was called a, a puppy license. And up until six months, the puppy can get away with absolute blue murder. But on day one of that last month, it's over. That puppy license is gone and you're now considered an adult. And if you bite me on the eyelid, then um, chances are it's gonna be on. Yeah, so um, our adult dogs that are somewhat socialized, they tend to have an idea of this puppy license. Now, eventually the pup learns to moderate their own behavior and it's important for us to, to referee this as, as much as we can. Uh, I've seen more than a few dogs that have a pretty disciplinarian attitude and others that'll be excited by the pup's increased level of play. And just like kids in the playground, they can start to play rough and at some point, some intervention is gonna be needed to stop things getting completely out of hand. Um, not every dog is well socialized and they'll just kind of run away with the fairies and uh, look, I, I have had it. Um, 
you uh, leave for work one day with a pup and an, an adult dog and you come home and you don't have a puppy anymore. Um, they've been smashed by the adult dog and they've died of their wounds. It, look, it, it, it happens more commonly than um, uh, may be appreciated. If we don't have a dog that can overcome their savage nature in the first place, then we could run into problems later on. Yeah. Now, that from the above points, I mean, there's there's a, a lot more than goes on, but I just want to be able to show you how important it is for puppies to be with their litter. And if the litter is too small, if the if the litter only consists of of one to three pups, it is really advisable to have a surrogate litter for as long as possible. Right, so a, a, a responsible breeder is going to make sure that, that their pups grow up around other pups. If they miss this stage, that later learning and interaction, man, it's possible, but it is slow, it's cumbersome, it's tedious, it's difficult. Right? Um, dogs that have been taken away too early, they'll appear aggressive, they'll appear defensive, um, they'll be cautious. There's nothing good happens from taking a puppy away from their litter too early. The human um, socialization phase is where foundations of the pup-to-human relationship are laid. It's important to provide a positive environment with plenty of together time and purposeful training at this stage. So um, from a human's perspective, we talk a lot about skin time. Get your, get your newborn infant and get them on your chest. Get that skin time. Yeah, And it's not really very much different with pups. Give them some touch time. It's the oxytocin that we're trying to... Uh, take advantage of when we really dive into it deeply. And oxytocin is something that allows us to feel good in a social environment. That physical affection is a good thing. Now, what we also want to teach our dogs is to be able to deal with the level of oxytocin, that it's okay, you go too far away from me, there's no chance of you getting that physical affection. So uh, pups will tend to stay closer towards us in, in the hope of getting that oxytocin. But then neither do we want them to be dependent on that oxytocin. You don't need that physical touch all the time. So there's, a, there's this Goldilocks principle of not too much and not too little. Yeah. Now, a pup's learning at a pretty insane rate and you really only get a good crack at forming a solid relationship. After that, it, it becomes a little harder as the puppy's developed a fairly specific opinion about you and probably even other people. And it's usually during this stage that pups find a new home as well. So uh, week seven to eight is when most pups are going home. They're brought home and then they're given the entire house, a garden, balcony, whatever to roam around in. And it's too much liberty. I mean, we don't... We, we have to keep in mind that when we bring our pups home, think of the body as a car. You don't let a, an infant drive a car around. It's, the, nothing good is going to happen for that. But if we're strategic about it, we keep a dog tethered to us, we keep them on the lead, or we just keep them in the room with us, and we allow them to explore, and then we slowly start to expose them to more and more liberty, and they can start to ex explore more and more as they become confident in that. I've seen plenty of pups that have 
have been flooded. That means that they've been exposed to the full intensity of whatever it is. Here's the entire house. Here's the whole yard. It's yours. Go and have it. And then we wonder why house training is a problem. We wonder why our lawn is being ripped to pieces. There's all sorts of other side effects that come about. So we want to be somewhat strategic and make it as easy and simple as possible, not just for a pup, but also for us. So with so many distractions, it kind of gets hard to maintain the puppy's attention to you. Think of the human socialization period. And as a side effect, things tend to suffer, you know. It makes house training a lot more difficult with all that freedom to roam. The pup can literally go to the toilet anywhere and leave little notes for you to pick up. And you may not find them until months later or when you move the furniture. Now, it may seem counterintuitive limiting the freedom to roam. But it's actually really important for the pup. Having the pup on a lead attached to your belt means that they have to follow you around all the time. And this builds a really strong bond and allows you to speed up the toilet training for your pup without the sudden rush of getting to your pup when they do finally go and they're down the hallway and you've got to clean stuff up. I get it. It seems very limiting. It seems a bit draconian. And I'm certain that not every person is going to be able to or going to be able to do this. But it does have its merits and it certainly reinforces the puppy-human bond. Whilst also minimizing the opportunity that a pup has to get themselves into trouble. And they have very sensitive brains. There's a massive amount of neuroplasticity. They learn a huge amount of stuff that they are aware of as well as what they are not aware of. Yeah, so that's that conscious and unconscious competence that um, Maxwell would talk about. It's also important that the puppy becomes familiar with many different types of people during this stage. And it's critical that the puppy be exposed to men, women, boys, girls, uh, not just in high tea and other low excitement situations. As far as the puppy's concerned, you might like high tea hanging out with uh, whatever friends in a very quiet atmosphere where everything is very ordered but your puppy also needs to be able to deal with disorder. They need to be able to deal with a certain amount of chaos. So if you have kids who have friends, it's a good idea to bring those friends around and kind of yeah, have a purpose to it. There's no problem saying, hey, can you come over at seven o'clock and you know, make sure your kids are there. We'll, you know, we'll have sandwiches, we'll have cookies, blah, blah, blah. Just get them to avoid the puppy. And then at quarter past seven, your next lot of friends turn up and they've been told the exact same thing. And then at half past seven, the next lot of people turn around. And rather than exposing your dog to absolutely everything and now they're sink or swim, there's, you know, there's a couple of dozen kids floating around. They've all had uh, their red frogs and cordial and now they're, they're all loopy. That can create a really, really scary situation for a pup. So instead, we kind of, we trickle them with that information and our, our pups tend to become a little bit better off for that. And we want to couple these experience with something that is nice towards that towards our pups. So something nice, nice as anything that um, our, our pup will work for. Yeah, so be that food, toys, physical affection, whatever that is. Being able to pair some sort of an event with a nice consequence makes our pup far more resilient later on down the track. So it prevents our, our pups from chasing kids rather than just paying attention to them. It prevents them, sorry, it from prevents them from chasing them and allows them to, to pay more, uh, more attention to them and just be habituated to them. They don't, I don't need to go and chase the children. 
they're doing all the running around themselves and I'm, I'm happy to play with them, but I don't need to I don't need to be there right now doing everything. Same with bearded men wearing baseball caps and sunnies. Yeah? And it sounds like a lot of work, I get it, but it really isn't. It, it doesn't take a huge amount of effort. Yeah? And you can do it in your normal life. And we don't really need to know exactly how specific our puppies are now, but we should make an attempt at giving them lots of social interaction and make it attach to us. But we also want to foster a certain amount of independence from us. Yeah, so again, it's that Goldilocks principle of too much, too little, just right. Now that first fear stage uh, that we talked about, it can go unnoticed. Many many pups just simply run away from specific situations or, um, uh, or, or they'll just avoid them or they'll do other things, a loud noise and they'll sniff. But if I notice that there's a towards or an away response that the pups are offering, then I'm gonna pair that with something like yes. So that my dogs, they don't feel an intense need to escape. Or they don't feel the intense need to, or, or, or the unconscious action of shutting down and neither do they feel um, the need to, to punch their way out of a corner. It's, it's, it's quite hard to retrain a dog to accept cars as a viable form of transport when they're petrified of them. It's hard to train dogs to ignore a thunderstorm that doesn't happen every day. And if I'm not setting things up, then it's, I can't rely on real life events as a training mechanism. Without adequate attention, it's possible that your pup will form a fear of these situations and, and these can have some serious consequences. On one side, the dog is petrified of getting in the car and a tug of war and shoes on the lead, or the dog drools egg whites all over your interior, and uh, uh, or, or they can bark, they can howl, run away during a thunderstorm. None of these things need to happen if you're attentive enough and strategic enough to provide as many teachable moments as you can to your pup and connect them with something that the pup enjoys. If there's a thunderstorm and there's rain, go out in it and play games. You know, make it... The pup is going to be fearful of thunder the first time they hear it, more than likely. But it doesn't mean that's the be-all and end-all. Rather than wrapping them up in cotton wool, get them out in it and do something that's, that's enjoyable to them there. They will more than likely follow your lead and it is only the genetic component that is going to, going to hamper us in that particular instance. Now, food and play will be huge. The puppy will learn to accept those over the aversive situations and then those aversive situations tend to become normal. Yeah, if you refer back to, to episode one, I was talking about cortisol and how cortisol is what creates a bad feeling in us when there is something nasty and it, it makes me desire a means of escape. But if I raise the threshold to escape, then my dog is able to cope with more. Now, there can be a thunderstorm and my dog might just go undercover because the rain is coming. Yeah, that would be kind of the ideal situation. Now, there are gonna be situations where the response is gonna to be too subtle for you to notice and then things happen later on in life. And I get it, that's not a problem. 
That's why I have the business that I do and that's why there are loads of other trainers around as well. It doesn't mean that you failed, it just means that you only know what you know. So we simply, we move on from our fears and we move on from uh, realizing that we can't do this alone. Bring a trainer in and make it a, make that trainer a good one and you'll be able to open up windows back into into these critical and sensitive periods and we'll be able to recover a bunch of stuff. Yeah, so um, just because we've missed one of these critical periods doesn't mean some recovery or, or full recovery isn't possible. There are a bunch of, of, um, of people, professionals, breeders, uh, um, enthusiasts alike that will try and smash into a pup a huge amount of skills really, really early on. And I, I kind of think that's, that's a wide path that leads to destruction. And I think that the narrow path, which is a little bit more arduous perhaps, um, doesn't yield the same fast um, uh, responses from our pups. Um, I can't show a huge amount off, but what I get at the end of it is a far more solid set of foundations that my dog is able to lean on in times of trouble and it prevents a huge amount of behavioral problems later on in life. Now, these three aspects are confidence, hunting, and exposure. And I believe that these are really the three most critical aspects of raising any pup. And until your pup is five to six months old, I really think that these are, are, are the only things that you really need to, con need to concentrate on. See, what tends to happen is when people get caught up in the minutiae of teaching skills to a pup, they see all these amazing things that a young pup is able to do. But ultimately, those foundations are then built on sand. And I, I have yet to see a pup that can do a huge amount of things at a young age, still do them when they're 12 months old. Um, I remember I, I was presented with um, a beautiful German Shepherd a little while ago. I took him in for a board and train, was, uh, was an assistance um, candidate. Um, wonderful dog, but did not have the coping mechanisms available to be a successful candidate for the intended purpose. Now, this was uh, excellent breeding, excellent puppy whelping. Um, but the advice that the owner had gotten at the time really wasn't suitable to their dog, to their lifestyle, and certainly not um, for their purpose. They were trying to do too many things in too short a time. But because they got such an amazingly well-bred dog, the pup was able to reciprocate. Unfortunately, because we haven't worried about treating the dog as a living sentient organism you know, that, that has feelings, that has emotional capacity. Because the owner wasn't taught those things, what happens is the foundations were so weak that as soon as the dog hit maturity, they were burnt out. And whilst we could get the dog to do things, the dog really wasn't into doing them anymore. Like, there's a reason why child labor is illegal. Right? Um, there's a reason why there aren't many child prodigies. prodigies. The burnout rate, the, and 
even just think of professional athletes how many kids start playing a sport how many parents push their kids into sport and how many of those kids last the ride there's not many of those kids that are on the last bus home at the end of their playing career they're they're burnt out from it they're over it they're habituated to it they're done i'm just i'm sick of it right Whereas if we work on confidence and hunting and exposure and we're speaking our dog's language, these are the things that the dog is born to do. They have no choice but to do them. This is A, a dog is born a predator. They, they will live a predator's life. They need to be able to be confident to be able to predate and hunt. They need to be able to be exposed to their hunting ground and to their quarry so that they can get out and be successful at hunting. Their entire organism is built to chase something down, to kill it and to eat it. And if we take advantage of that savage nature, then we can create over the medium to long term an amazing pet, an amazing field, an amazing working dog. So let's kind of dive into it a little bit. Hunting is something that we can easily do at home and is so often missed, even by professionals. That's mainly because so many people think that hunting means sacrificing a critter or having your puppy turn into a rabid demon. But the opposite is true. If we promote and allow our dogs to express themselves as predators, they'll be happier, they'll be more fulfilled and enriched, and that means a calmer, more patient pup. Yeah? So from a pet perspective, you can do all sorts of scent games. I've got clients who hide their dog's food all around the house. Then they bring their, their dog in, their dog runs through the house, has the best time of life and they're foraging and they're scavenging and they're getting all of their, their meal. And at the end of it, they're stoked. They're satiated on food, they're satiated on the foraging. They have a much happier relationship within themselves as well as with with their owners. Now hunting, even training. I teach my clients a very specific verbal means of communication and make no mistake that you then have verbal quarry that you can call up anytime. Your dog sits when you want, it makes you say yes to your dog, they're hunting you for that yes all the time. Yeah, They're actively trying to avoid you saying no at any time. And that's totally cool. That's all part of nature. I try to do things for my wife that she enjoys. I avoid doing things that will mean something horrible to my wife. I don't want to hurt her feelings. And it's the same thing with our dogs. So they want to do the things that will provide them with a nice consequence. They want to avoid doing things that will provide them with a nasty consequence. And it's an abstract form of hunting that our dogs get on board with quite easily. Now, exposure is kind of another big deal. Exposure is most definitely something that we tend to do by and large fairly poorly. Puppies should be strategically exposed to other dogs and in particular adult dogs before 16 weeks of age. Yep, before 16 weeks of age. Prior to a puppy's full vaccination course, they should be exposed to other dogs, they should be exposed to other places, and they should be exposed to other people. Because the risk of disease is far outweighed by the risk of behavioral impediment. 
right? And that behavioral gap leads to reactivity, separation stress, aggression, overexcitement, uh, overattachment. It leads to a dog not being able to walk with you. It leads to behavioral euthanasia. It leads to surrendering. It leads to uh, the selling of a dog. It leads to injury, vet bills, all sorts of things. What I can't squeeze into, adequately squeeze into, the first 16 weeks of a pup's life is gonna echo for the rest of their life. And if I don't take my time to develop my puppy well enough, then they're gonna literally bite me in the bum later on. Now, we have to keep in mind that from a veterinary perspective, the way I see it, things need to be uh, reproducible, definable, measurable. So for that, we have vaccines, right? So with, with my vaccine, I can clearly measure the amount of antibodies, the amount of, uh, um, of usable things that are floating around in my dog's bloodstream to keep them safe. It's definable. I know exactly what I'm putting into my dog at any moment in time to keep them safe. And it is, you know, it's measurable. What is then biological but then less definable, less measurable, are the antibodies that are being passed down from mum through the colostrum and through the milk. Our dogs are born with antibodies. Our dogs are born with certain immunities. And that carries over as they get taken home. Otherwise, as soon as they're born, they would become sick, they would die, and we wouldn't have dogs anymore. So. We have to treat it with a little bit of real world application. If I keep my dog at home wrapped in cotton wool for the first 16 weeks, then I'm going to have problems later on down the track. Puppy schools are not about learning how to sit, stay, walk and come. I build a foundation for successful interaction with my environment. That's what a puppy school is there for. Right? And I can use exposure for that. With my clients, we will go to hardware stores. We will go into public spaces. We will get our dogs exposed to loud noises, scary things, frightening things, things that may be tasty but really aren't, things that are tasty but can't be had. We're exposing our dogs to learn about their environment and how, that they, can, um, how they can interact with their environment. Okay? If we concentrate on teaching the foundation of confidence, of hunting and exposure, we build a resilient, a smart, a brave, a happy, a joyful, an engaged, an inquisitive, and an expressive puppy. And that puppy will quickly learn the skills that you want or you need for work, for sport, for hobby, or just for your own purposes as a pet. Teaching power and control to your puppy is the mainstay until they're six months old and gives them a deep toolbox within which they can lead their lives. And without those tools, every problem needs a hammer. And that hammer is escape. And that escape may not be running away. It may be aggression. It may be anxiety. It may be separation anxiety. It may be self-injury. It may be injury to others. And that sort of stuff we simply don't need. Let's have a look at some real benchmarks here that are gonna help, help us get your puppy house trained. So it's important to realize that not all dogs are equal and every dog is an individual. In the same way people mature at different rates, so too do our dogs. 
There are specific breeds that can indeed mature at different rates and our dogs are still individuals with individual maturation speeds within that breed. Right? So let's not go too fast or too slow for our pup that is in front of us. So without a doubt, the biggest headache is the science and art of house training a young pup. And there are two main aspects to consider when house training a puppy. Diet, food and water intake, and the age of a pup. As long as the puppy has access to food and water, they will also need access to an area within which they can toilet. And the frequency uh, for this need is kind of dictated, generally speaking, by age. So there's a table that I've got on my website which kind of takes you through this, but I, there's, a, there's a specific period of development which I managed to um, grab a hold of. I think it was from the Monks of Newskid, actually. So how many hours can a dog last before they need to toilet? We've got to be aware that this is kind of rule of thumb. Yeah, I don't need to go to the toilet at the same minute of every day. Neither do you. There are times when I need to go sooner. There are times I need to go later. So up until my dog is about, or my pup is about three months old, generally speaking, during the day, they can last an hour before needing the toilet. Of a night time, they can last about four hours. Between three to four months, every two hours they'll need to toilet during the day and every six hours of a night time. Between four and five months, every three hours they'll need a toilet break of a day, every eight hours of a night time. Between six and seven months, they can last about four hours during the day and they're still lasting about eight hours of a night time. Between eight to 11 months, they can last about five hours during the day, still getting the eight hours worth of sleep of a night time. And from about 12 months onwards, you're looking at about eight hours in between toilet during the day and around about 10 hours plus um, of a night time. So that gives you some fairly hard and fast benchmarks, <coughs> excuse me, around which you can kind of gauge your success rate for toilet training. So you'll notice that during the night, a pup can easily go without needing the toilet for a far greater period than during the day. And that's just because they're not taking any food or water in, nor are they in a state of activity, and neither are they in a state of excitement. So much like people, nothing in results in nothing out. And assuming all is biologically in sound working order, it should be okay. But when dealing with living organisms, there are limitations to this, obviously. So there are a number of factors that can have an effect on the amount of hours between toilet breaks. The amount of play sessions, the portion size of your pup's food, the quality or type of food, the, the maturation rate of your pup, even the health of your dog are just some examples of influencing factors for toilet training or how long they need between toilet breaks. So ha let's have a look at some hard and fast rules. So when your pup wakes up, it's toilet time. When you finish playing, it's toilet time. If your pup has just had something to drink, it's toilet time. When your pup has just finished eating, it's toilet time. When your pup is getting ready to sleep, it's toilet time. So if you, if you do yourself and your pup a favor, stick to an age-appropriate schedule of when to go to the toilet. The hardest part about toilet training time is not catching it in the act, but being proactive and capitalizing on a teachable moment. Right? Forewarned is forearmed, and now that we've got an idea of when, it's kind of up to us to now get to the how.
So when when you take your puppy out, allow them time just to chill out and get to do their business. And this can take a little bit of time. There's going to be some accidents along the way. So we'll just take that for granted. Just remember that the pup can't hold their bladder very well and they are still learning. If they're drinking and eating and not toileting, it could be that they're simply too excited to go. Uh, it can also be that they are really trying to hold it in. There are dogs that will um, hold toileting in for an, an excessively long time if they are scared. Um, if they are in a very defensive mood for a prolonged period of time, they will try to stave off giving more of a scent picture of themselves. That means they'll move around less so they don't shed around too much. They don't leave smelly traces of themselves, their paw prints and their fur. They don't breathe everywhere, which could alert a, uh, another dog to them. They will try to not eat so that they don't have to toilet because that feces will send off scents and inform other dogs that they're there. And they will try not to drink because that will then tell other dogs through the, the smell of urine that there is another dog present. So that there are a bunch of factors as, uh, as to why a dog may not toilet, right? So if your dog's simply not toileting, then um, vets and trainers are, are other people that I would be asking. Uh, but just, just give it time. Now put, put Netflix on pause, put the phone down, and just be in that moment with your dog. And as soon as your pup has finished their business, that last drop hits the ground, say yes and pay them. And then give them a little bit more time because that was just very exciting. And then go back inside. And there's no shame in catching your pup as they're about to go when you're inside the house. Just scoop them up into your arms, whisk them outside. That's exciting in itself and your pup may need to calm down. So where they were suddenly going to the toilet, as if you've caught them quick enough, they're suddenly gonna suck everything back in and it's gonna take a minute or two for it to come back out again. So it just, it calls on us to be patient. And that's, that's totally cool. Babies with their nappies when they're toilet training too, right? We all did it. It's just a big deal if we make it one. Not all Dog owners have a yard to access, and I can tell you I've been in situations before where I've lived in apartments and I've done toilet training with a dog, and I've done toilet training with a dog in an apartment who had explosive diarrhea, and it was hectic. But as stressful as it was, if you stick to the schedule, you should be okay. But if you're finding it a bit more difficult, then what I would suggest is to, is to get some turf or a turf surrogate and put that out somewhere so that your dog can get to that with ease in place of a toilet. Yeah, and I would tend to have that either outside on a balcony or near the front door or in the toilet, whatever that is. Uh, the good thing about turf is that it simulates what's already naturally an occurring toilet for our dogs, yeah? Um, I'm not a big fan of like a bunch of other stuff. There's a lot of very nice things out on the market. If that tickles your fancy, go for it. That's just personal preference, to be honest. So, when your pup has eliminated, get into the habit of picking it up and disposing of the waste as soon as possible. 
This creates a situation where you spend a little more time outside with your pup and you get in the habit of cleaning the waste up and you end up with a cleaner garden for it. Now, please avoid staring at your dog as they toilet. Professionally speaking, I believe that our dogs do deserve some level of privacy. Particularly in public, your dog's pretty vulnerable and you can be scared in the area for possible events that could be problematic to your dog's bowel movement. Uh, so you'll find that your dog is staring at you with a very sad and sorry look on their face because, well, you're staring at them while they're trying to squeeze a poo out. I mean, I don't know about you, I'm, I prefer to have no one in the toilet with me. Chances are your dog does too. I know my Kefi, he does not like it when people see him go to the toilet. He likes to hide and he will drift away very quietly and suddenly find himself on his own when he needs to go to the toilet. So it's totally fine. Avoid looking straight at your dog going, oh, what a good boy, what a good girl for squeezing out a poo. Just let him get on with it and be a good mate to your dog and look around the environment. They are in the most vulnerable position they can find themselves in. It behooves us to pay attention to the environment. If I need to suddenly get my dog out of there now, then I can act as a second set of eyes for my dog. As and when your dog does have a toileting accident in your home, uh, don't rub their nose in it. I'll, I'll kind of expose that, that myth. Right? Earlier on in this episode, we talked about how at a very young age, who was it that elicited the signal for our pups to be able to open their bowels? It wasn't the pup themselves, it was their mum. And as a pup, they still don't have full or even complete biological control of their bowels. It happens when it happens. They can't necessarily hold on to it. They can't necessarily squeeze it out any faster. It happens when it happens. No different to a baby in nappies. And it is tragic when your kids are walking around the house with a nappy full of whatever. Hey, look what I did. Or when you're going through that toilet training phase and you just don't quite make it there and there's wee and poo all around the place. Yeah, it happens. It's natural, it's biological. So I the reason why I'm saying that is to try and get you to um, accept that it is natural, it's biological, it is fine, it is okay, it's the way we're designed. Now, why is it that the nose rubbing thing went on for so long and everyone said, this is how you do it, because it works. Well, as our pups mature, they're getting better bowel control. They're able to, to prevent going to the toilet. They're able to find out where to go. Right? Now, we just talked about how many breaks a, a puppy needs for that stage in life. So if I rub my dog's nose in it, each and every time that I find a parcel, my puppy develops a conditional response. If there is poo lying around and you are nearby, I feel crap. That's what we teach our dogs. And Kefi underwent that as a, as a pup, and that's why he has the toileting habit that he has. It took me, I think it's seven, seven or eight months for him to be able to bear to toilet on the lead. All right. So it's important for our dogs to feel that freedom 
If I rub my dog's nose in it, I am not teaching him to avoid toileting in the house. I am teaching him that toilet in the house plus your presence equals nasty consequence. That is all. The unfortunate aspect of the whole nose rubbing thing was as our dogs, as our pups matured, they got better bowel control, they got better bladder control, they started to have less accidents, and it gave people a false positive. I'm rubbing my dog's nose in it, plus my dog's bowel and bladder control is improving, equals house breaking is working. But it wasn't. All we were doing was piling on emotional pressure, putting on a bunch of physical pressure, and just sometimes there was some bad stuff that came out of it that we don't necessarily appreciate. So you're kind of equipped to be able to set up a space for the toilet as well as a consistent schedule to be able to plan in toilet breaks for your pup. So a slight change of tact, we're going to have a look at, um, at jumping at the moment. Jumping is a very, very common problem that I come across. So we'll have a look at um, why dogs jump. It starts in puppyhood. Right? Well, let's just take a step back. And in order for a bad habit like jumping to start, two criteria have to be met to start with. One, there must be something nice enough about getting up there in the first place. Two, there must have been something beneficial about having been up there to want to go back. Now, the act of jumping itself is a means to an end um, and not really the issue. It's the motivation to do it and the payoff of being up there. So let's look at why dogs might be motivated to get up in our faces and, and uh, rewarded for being there. As a pup, when the dam comes back towards the litter and they're being weaned off of the nipple and onto solids, they will instinctively start to lick around the, the dam's mouth and she will reflexively regurgitate food upon which they will gorge. Right, this is um, their transition. They're weaning away from milk onto solid foods. So why then are our dogs jumping on up to us and trying to lick our faces? Because it's a maladapted infantile behavior. They're trying to get, as we come in from work, they're jumping up and they're trying to lick our faces. Not because they're trying to make us vomit up our lunch, but because it is an instinctual, savage way of communicating. Yeah, But we're not aware of that. So as pups, we kind of promote that, which is tapping into that innate puppy behavior from which our dogs then learn to adapt that inborn skill to a new environment, which is our home. When we're playing with our dogs, even when we're feeding them, we hold on to the interesting article too long compared to our pup's capacity and we create a pushy habit. So I might have the food bowl go, oh, I sit, 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 stay, 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 and I'll shake the food bowl around, oh, no, stay. Well, I'm creating a massive amount of conflict there and the pup wants nothing more to jump up. Or I'll walk down the stairs with the food and my dogs will jump up because they're so stoked. They just want to see what's in that bowl and I'm teaching them to jump, right? We shriek in excited tones when we're interacting with our dogs, you know, kind of like some of these YouTube trainers recommend. And it, it, 
Yeah, sure. It creates an abundance of excitement and it certainly creates a lasting memory, but it also helps to keep that jumping alive. We teach our dogs to jump and they transfer that skill set to other situations. Yeah, that can happen. And we allow them to jump up sometimes, but not all the time. And that creates a, um, that creates a variable reinforcement schedule whereby we push the dog down to, hey, stop it, cut it out, I don't like it. And it might put that jumping on pause, but it doesn't stop it, yeah? And an, another reason for being up there is that our dogs crave our attention and they get some. And these are just some of the examples. I mean, the list goes on, but these are the ones that I find most often. The common denominator in all of these six points is us. Our dogs simply reflect their environmental standards within which they live. And if we're providing a lifestyle that promotes accidentally or intentionally bad, in inverted commas, behaviors, then we'll also be forced to suffer them. So let's have a look at some prevention by addressing some of those points, right? So if we're not carrying our pup around so much and we allow them to grow beyond being a puppy forever, particularly at times when you're greeting your dog, picking them up creates a routine which your dog will eventually try to recreate, particularly with anybody. At some point, that will generalize. They'll try and jump up to Nan. They'll try and jump up on, I don't know, little Johnny. Uh, create an event which sets your dog up to su succeed. If your dog can't sit still for 30 seconds, don't make them wait for 40 seconds and expect them to behave, right? So they're going to break that sit. They're going to get overexcited. And there's really little need, in my opinion, to sound like a mouse. Sound like yourself. Um, and to use some catchwords, be authentic, be yourself. Because your dog's going to thank you for it. If you're trying to fake it, your dog's going to know that there's something not right. And that's going to put them off. Sounding like a wounded mouse, it can elicit your dog's curiosity. Sure. It can also elicit your dog's prey mood. Right? And, and that can lead to some conflict. I'm, I'm just... Some people do it. It's not a personal favorite of mine. Um... Avoid teaching your dog to jump up on you in the first place. A lot of, most pet dogs, they don't dock dive. They don't climb a palisade. They don't need to climb up ladders. So avoid teaching it. And chances are that seed will never germinate. If you don't want your dog to jump, then simply just don't ever allow it. If you continue to engage them while they're jumping, they will want to keep jumping. It's part of the repertoire. If you continue to eliminate the jumping, then they'll stop. If you provide your dog with enough social engagement between you and them, then your dog will be able to control their enthusiasm. If you keep your dog away from you and only engage with them five minutes a day, expect the relationship to suffer. And in this instance, you'll be forced to suffer the overly enthusiastic greeting of a dog that misses you. Uh, so, and then you get frustrated, your dog gets frustrated, confused, and just bad stuff happens. So providing a healthy, balanced, and socially adequate environment is going to allow your dog to specialize to your home and the expectations that you have within it. Um, and that's something that I tell my clients when they're going through the GRAY program is I don't care what your rule set is. I don't care what your lifestyle is. What I'm giving you is a toolbox within which you can apply and refine the lifestyle which you want to have. Yeah. Which is all cool, but what if my dog is already jumping and I don't, don't want it? 
Well, there's many ways that lead to Rome. Here's a couple of simple ways. One slower, also useful for soft dogs, one faster, um, useful for, in inverted commas, the more stubborn dog, yeah? Keep in mind that if your dog is jumping, they're motivated by what is up there and rewarded by the interaction, the attention when they're up there or on their way up. And we need to create a scenario whereby the motivation to get up is outweighed by the motivation to stay down. And we need to keep in mind that we need to provide a competitive reinforcer, something that's worth their while, a nice consequence that prevents a dog from getting up in the first place. For most pups and soft dogs, teaching a sit is totally cool. Teach your dog to sit when they're reliable and you can start to add time as a component to the sit. Whilst your dog is going through the motions of sitting for your duration, you'll need to provide something that motivates your dog to stay in that position. Now, food's fine. Just pick something your dog likes and then you know, aim for a drooling dog. If the dog's drooling, in my opinion, that's a pretty good thing. For a more committed dog, teaching a sit may not be enough. In some instances, uh, when a very small elderly or infirmed or... Um, uh, otherwise um, sensitive or fragile family member comes in and they're affected um, by your overly rambunctious 80 kilo dog, um, we might just need some faster results. In that case, we'll, we'll move our jumper whilst they're in the air. Right, so dogs have an expectation that when they do something, um, they're expecting that particular standard, right? I jump up as high as I do, and then I come back down. So something that you can do is grab a hold of the paws, hold on to them nice and tight, and wait for your dog to struggle a little bit. And that's not gonna be met with success. We want them to be actively pulling away from your hands, and that you can then let down. They'll go, well, that kind of sucked. Um, maybe I, I, I just wanna be down here. And that's where you can then tickle the chin. Um, if you've got like a pretty full on jumper, um, one thing that I, I have taught is to get your knee underneath the rib cage and keep the dog aloft for a little while longer than they had expected to. Yeah? So what happens is the startle response of starting the landing process later than expected gives a moment of pause to the next jump, at which point, again, I can tickle the chin. What I avoid doing is pushing down. Try not to push down because that creates a bigger jump up. It's like pulling an elastic band and wondering why it flicks off, yeah? Uh, if you must though, um, I just tend to apply the word no and provide a nasty consequence to it and soon enough they're not jumping anymore. Yeah, so uh, I, I can prevent the issue from occurring I can refine the issue to some uh, the 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 jumping to something else, or I can I can stop it later on in, in its tracks. So, the next most common item of puppy behaviour that I tend to find is destructive chewing, and this is something that will easily last into adulthood. Yeah, uh, something that I uh, one person had rung me up once and they were on their, I believe it was their fifth lounge. Um, and we didn't go ahead with training because apparently training was uh, too expensive. Um, I, I don't know how many lounges you need to buy before the gray program is uh, worth its weight in gold. But anyway, um, if you're coming home and the sofa looks like it exploded and there's a cute little puppy there sitting there with tufts of material around their face, it's pretty easy to put one on one together. Yeah, so 
we talked a little bit earlier about when chewing in particular will start to occur. Uh, but, but let's talk about some of the main causes and, and how it starts and things like that. So, uh, When our pups are learning the, the, the fundamental life skills uh, for their particular lifestyle, uh, they start to teethe when they're in your home. That teething creates pain. That pain creates cortisol. That cortisol creates a need to escape. How does our dog escape the pain that's in their mouth? They chew stuff. Now, if they don't have an adequate thing to chew on, they will find an inadequate thing to chew on. The arithmetic is very simple. Yeah, so during those times when my pups are teething, I wanna make sure that they have access to soft, frozen, cold, um, as well as hard things to chew on with which they can dislodge their teeth, they can get their frustrations out and all sorts, yeah? I know it's often hard to say no, and I, I get it, but um, sometimes we do need to say no, even to our puppies, and then we can provide them with something else. I don't like the permissive worldview that, um, or the the permissive paradigm, which will say, "Hey, oh, you have this need. Let's redirect that onto something else." I do not want my dogs chewing things up incessantly. I do not want my dogs chewing on power cords while I'm not there to see them. Um, so, it, when I can catch it, I will affect it. That's a teachable moment. Yeah. Uh, it's quite okay to say no and provide a nasty consequence. It's quite okay. But they're a pup. And it doesn't take long for them to disassociate from that nasty consequence and what they were doing. And then uh, the, the discomfort of their teething is still present. I must provide them with something to relieve themselves. Now, I have had a dog once. It took me a little while to figure it out, but I had like a, a coffee table with metal legs. And he would just hold it in his mouth just grab a hold of those metal legs no no pressure I'm like what are you doing like why would you do that and then i realized well it is winter um i don't mind the cold they're metal legs so yeah yeah he's teething and then soon enough you're walking over little teeth that have fallen out so um be aware of why your dog is doing something yeah and and be aware of your puppy and your puppy's needs and things will will make a lot more sense later on. Now, that teething is gonna start to happen around seven months, yeah? And very much like a teething baby, they, they just wanna chew on stuff, yeah? Uh, I would tend to provide them with cold meals, um, stuffed food toys, yeah, frozen meals, things like that. Something that allows your dog to relieve their gums on. Um, the more you learn about your puppy now the better you will know your dog later and that only creates a much better environment for everybody for your lifetime with, with each other but if your pup creates a habit of chewing in this stage and isn't limited in the selection of chewable items they'll continue to find things to chew on since the behavior is self-reinforcing 
So my mouth aches, I chew, I'm relieved. That's what we talked about before, that whole chain. By seeking relief, the puppies tend to then apply that skill to other situations. That, that form of escape is then applied in different situations onto different things. That need is met and that then generalizes to things like hunger, boredom, investigation. Yeah? A dog will become inquisitive or bored and they'll find an article of interest like a well-used screwdriver, socks, hammers, embarrassing undies, heirloom cushions, whatever. Yeah? These articles are interesting, not just because, not just by happenstance, but since they have a lingering odor about them of you, and perhaps even warmth from their favorite person, even after washing it, there'll still be odor there. Yeah. These items become pacifiers, like a dummy to a baby. Yeah. And as your dog starts to mouth and delve into that sensation of arousal through chewing, remember they are predators, and evisceration is a, a part of their genetic expression. They'll eviscerate your cushions, they'll eviscerate your undies, and that's reinforcing to them, and their emotional mindset is eased by that, and they'll continue until some point, and they'll get excited again, and they'll just go back for it some more. And this can quickly dive in, into, a, uh, into a pretty bad behavior habit, and we want to we wanna cut through that. Yeah. Now... If I'm paying attention to my pup's development, then the destructive chewing that tends to happen later on falls off the back of the truck. Yeah. Um, satisfy your dog's emotional needs first, ensuring that they're receiving enough beneficial companionship for life. If you can do that, you'll learn to read and understand what your dog is looking for in the first place, and you fill that need. You know, that's what you bought a dog for home in, in the first place. So restricting access to precious items is certainly an option. Crate and kennel training will help in this situation as well. Um, ensure that you're meeting the physiological needs of your dog, particularly if the crate or kennel is to last long. Yeah, And if they got their stays within that are going to be long. Um, so you can use like an exercise pen with... Uh, a crate, for example, to restrict the amount of freedom your pup has whilst they're not supervised. You can put um, you can put the toilet area in there as well so the puppy continues to do the house training. You can limit the things that your puppy can chew on because if we prevent bad behaviors from forming in the first place, we don't have to untrain them later. Yeah. Um, make sure that you, your pup is being exercised, that physical and mental enrichment that is age appropriate yeah um, so just on a little sidebar if you're going to walk your pup the rule of thumb is walk your pup for five minutes per month of age so an eight week old pup is two months old that means that in a day you can walk them maximum 10 minutes so that's five minutes out five minutes back that's it that's the allotment done so if we have a look at a 10-month-old pup, that's 50 minutes. Now you can walk 25 minutes away from home and 25 minutes back. Yeah? If we go much beyond that, then we're starting to go into more catabolic sort of exercise. And the wear and tear that we are then putting onto our young pup's skeletal structure can easily lead to early onset of arthritis. Yeah? And that's not a cool thing.
So if, if we limit it now, by the time our, our pups are 12 months old, they're physically mature enough to be able to withstand the endurance exercise of walking with you. Yeah. So the chewing, we've, we've kind of talked about that. Yeah, look, teething is most likely when it's going to happen. When they're inquisitive is most likely when it's going to happen. Act upon it, fulfill your pup's needs. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot more to puppyhood than what we've talked about, obviously. There's only so much time, and I think I've, uh, I've tried to make you drink through a fire hose. Um, if you've got any questions, obviously let me know. If you have a puppy, certainly let me know. Um, the last thing that I would advise is about puppy classes. Not all puppy classes are equal. There are very, very, very many puppy classes being offered. And the reason for that is they're easy. The sucky aspect about that is that puppy classes are in fact quite difficult. Because what I do wrong now is going to echo through the entire first 12 months of my dog's life, thereby creating lifelong habits. So if I go to um, a high street puppy school or puppy preschool, chances are that I'm going to learn how to sit, stay, um, my dog's going to be let off lead and then I'm expected to call my dog back and there's going to be big dogs and little dogs and barky dogs and scared dogs and it's okay that these two are rolling and then this one comes in and rolls all over the top of them and we're kind of not taking advantage of the developmental phase our dogs are at. Yeah. Um, in puppy preschool, I would be using that in order to be able to teach independence from other puppies to my pup. So you don't need to go and say hi. You'll get that sort of stuff when you get to go to daycare then you get to really socialize and really mix it up with other dogs. But puppy preschool is a way for you to learn about self-control. And I would be using that for that particular purpose. Um, you do need to be careful about who you choose as your puppy training provider. Um, when there's a bunch of us that offer specific puppy programs and there's reasons for that. Not all puppies are equal. Different breeds have different ways of expressing themselves and a puppy expresses themselves differently to an adult. So if we can build a strong, courageous, well-adjusted, balanced pup and teach you along the way of the things to watch out for, the teachable moments to capitalize upon, then that first year will be so much easier and if you have an easier first year, you'll have a much more fun life with your dog. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. And don't forget to teach them to want it. And when you need it, there's no doubt about it. So please do like, rate, subscribe, and share this on an app of your choice. And don't forget to especially use your voice now. If you want a question answered, if you want to give some feedback, I would love to hear from it. You can contact me at barefootpaws at mail.com. That's barefootpaws 
all one word, at mail, M-A-I-L.com. You can find me on the web, you can find me on Facebook, and you can find me on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you.